um, we are going to finish the book of Philippians today. So we're going to do something that's a little bit different for me. I, I, I normally don't teach with notes. And today I have lots of notes. So bear with me, like seven pages. And normally I just have like seven words written next to the margin of my Bible. And then I just hope the Holy Spirit shows up and reminds me of what I was thinking as I was going through the, the passages. But today's a little bit different. So we're going to, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Philippians. And as we talked about last week, we're going to, um, we just finished a chapter by chapter, verse by verse study through the book of Philippians. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to go back and hit the highlights in the book of Philippians with regard to the idea that the book of Philippians is about joy. Now, as you do that, I want you to hold one finger in Philippians and turn to Galatians. We're going to start in Galatians chapter five in verse 22. In the first service, I said Ephesians 5.22, and then um, I started reading it, and people were looking at me strange, and finally Mike raises his hand in the background. He's like, did you mean Galatians? Because you said Ephesians. And I said, well, yeah, Moses is on the ark, and, you know, and then I kept calling Solomon Noah in the early service. So it's not like I didn't have enough coffee. I got up this morning and drank plenty of coffee early. I got up at 3.30 and was drinking coffee until 7, and got here and drank another cup, but... So hopefully we'll be in the right books and the right places this morning. But um, so the idea of joy in the life of the believer is what we're going to talk about today. Now, one of the things that um, that that I try to do when I teach and when I try to talk about doctrine, um, I, I try to introduce it first in the Old Testament. And then and then something that Jesus talked about in the Gospels and then something that the epistles or the authors of the epistles also mentioned whenever we form doctrine. Today, we're going to be talking about water baptism. So we're going to look at water baptism from different angles. What did Jesus say about it? What did Paul say about it? What did the Apostle John say about it? What did Peter say about it? Whenever we form doctrine in the Bible of salvation and of other things, we we want to we want to get a, a, a broad idea. Now, listen, if if I take in, and, and I know what Jesus said about it and I know what John said about it and I know what Peter said about it and I know what Paul said about it. And if I take all four places of these four different examples in the Bible and, and I put them together to form a doctrine or a belief, then it's pretty solid, right? Is that a good way to do it? Are you guys going to wake up today? I got a, I got a whole bucket of water over there. I, I, I'm not against throwing it on you, all of you. I'll, I'll baptize you before the service starts. I'll, I'll come behind you with a bucket of water and Nacho Libre. I've been wanting to do that anyways. You've been baptized. So you're going to wake up today. I ask a lot of questions when I preach. So you got those, those questions require answers. Um, so that is that, you know, would you agree that as we form doctrine, if we take those multiple um, levels that we're safe? Now, if you know anything about your Bible, um, for example, the book of Job, you take the book of Job and in the book of Job for 30 chapters in the first like chapter or two, terrible things happen to Job. Ten of his kids die. He, he, everything in his house, his livestock, his houses collapse. He gets boils on his skin and he breaks pottery and he's scraping his skin because of the, the boils that are on his skin. His life is completely miserable. He covers himself in ashes. And then three of Job's friends show up. As you read the narrative of the book of Job, and for 30 chapters, the Holy Spirit records the, the, these three friends giving their ideas, their philosophies about why Job is going through what Job's going through. And, and for 30 chapters, the Holy Spirit, it's not doctrine, but the Holy Spirit just records this conversation. And how do we know we don't want to take it as doctrine? Because God shows up at the end of the book of Job, and what does he say to Job's three friends? 
Shut your mouth. Shut up, dummies. He says, where were you when I told the oceans where to stop? Where were you when I placed the constellations in, in orbit? Where were you when I formed the dinosaurs? Where were you when I, when I created the world and gave the seas their boundaries? And when I breathed the stars into existence, where were you? God tells these three friends. And then God goes on and explains what's going on. Now, you can't go to Job and, and take these 30 chapters of, of if you know the narrative of, of Job's three friends just kind of talking in the Holy Spirit, recording it and make doctrine. So be careful if somebody comes to you and says, look, the Bible says in Job chapter 27 right here in this verse. And that's all the evidence they have. It's not the way we form doctrine. Ecclesiastes, if you know your Bible, is very similar. Ecclesiastes is a story that God records about a man named Solomon, who I called um, Noah like 14 times in the first service. Um, But Noah, in the book of Ecclesiastes, he was a man who God allowed him to get to the top of five or six different areas of life that you and I will chase trying to find fulfillment and happiness. And Solomon started in, in different areas. And, and the first was, was pleasure. And Solomon had a thousand wives. And he partied until the sun came up in the morning and had pleasure galore. And as much pleasure as a man can humanly possibly have, Solomon experienced it. And he reached the very top, the pinnacle of that area. And he looked over and he said, vanity of vanity, all is vanities. What he was looking for to fulfill his life and his heart, the joy of the Lord wasn't there. And then, and then Solomon said, I know it's not in pleasure, it's in money. And Solomon became, and God allowed Solomon to become the wealthiest person that has ever lived on planet earth. And he had so much money, they stopped counting the silver. They only counted the gold because they had so much of it, they didn't know what to do with it. The, the, the queen of Egypt, you guys know the story, right? Um, she comes to Israel to, to, just because she hears the world knows of the glory of this, this king of Israel named Solomon. And she travels from Ethiopia. Did I say Egypt? Ethiopia to Israel. And the, the tradition says that she goes back to Ethiopia pregnant with Solomon's child. And that's another story of its own, but that's the tradition. And the Bible does record this, this queen of Ethiopia coming because she sees the splendor of Solomon and his majesty. And he got to the height of money and wealth. And he looked over and he said, not there either. He said, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. So then he said, I know what it is. It's wisdom. And Solomon pursued wisdom and he became the wisest person that ever lived. And, and he became and he wrote and he had all the, of history and science and technology and everything there was in education. Solomon had reached the pinnacle of education and he got to the top. And what did he say? Vanity of vanity. It's all vanity. It's not there. So um, so so Solomon is is an example that in all those things that there's no there, there, there it's not there. But the point being this. This was the actual point. I started preaching Solomon, but that wasn't the point. The point was that you, you can't go to Ecclesiastes and make a doctrine out of something that, that, that Solomon records in those chapters that he's chasing vanity, he's chasing money. And so in order to form a, a real doctrine, you, you have to get it from multiple sources in the Bible. That was a lot to say that, huh? Okay, so here's what we're going to do today. Totally different. Um, if you take notes, today's a good day to take notes. Uh, we're going to go from Old Testament, New Testament, and basically we're going to talk about the joy of the Lord. Something we've been talking about, the, uh, the theme to the letter to the Philippians is what? Joy. 
joy, joy. So I have another thing I'm kind of kicking around in my head right now, whether I'm going to go for it or not. I think I will. But um, the, I want to set this up to, with kind of a little illustration, but it takes a little bit to unpack it. But um, so first, just to say this, God's desire, God's heart for you is to have joy. You, you know, the Bible says that, and, I, and nobody's ever counted them, right? But everybody quotes the same number. 365 times the Bible tells you not to be afraid. And, and I've never counted them, but I've heard that number a lot. And that is one for every day of the year. Now, why would God tell you something in the word 365 times? Because you have a tendency to be afraid. And if you didn't have a tendency to have fear and be afraid, God wouldn't repeat it so many times in the word. But because he knows that's something that he constantly has to remind us for, like husbands that have to tell your wife 365 times a day you love them or they'll forget, that, that it's something that God knew we needed to know and joy is the same way. Really, once I start going through the, the, the amount of times and, and really the biblical emphasis upon joy in your life, in my life, then, then you'll see that it's, it's very consistent. Now, here's what I want to do with joy, because joy is very elusive, right? Would you guys agree? Joy in your life as a believer can be elusive. Is anybody in here just never experience any kind of discouragement or lack of joy? <laughs> yeah. And the Bible says, if you're married, you will find trouble, right? That's a promise. You know, I had, I had Lydia share on Wednesday night because she had a good testimony this week of, of just being discouraged and lacking joy and having a hard time, joy being elusive in her life. And um, she did a very good job of what we're going to talk about biblically today of joy being a choice. And that she had to jump on it with two feet. And she had to grasp the joy of the Lord in her life and regain it. And not let Satan win over this, this spiritual battle that she was facing. And the discouragement that she was facing. And that she jumped on it with two feet. And I, I watched her go through it this last week. And, and, and on Wednesday night, I said, will you just share with everybody that's here? And she didn't know I was going to do this last minute. Like the last song's playing. I go, you're going to preach tonight. And she got up and she just shared with us a little testimony of, of having joy and, re- and getting back and fighting for that joy because it's elusive. And so for you, h- how's your joy? What if I asked you to give it a scale, one to ten? Is that too tight, zero to a hundred? So you could be like in the 70s somewhere. H- how is our joy as believers? Does it lack? Are you on, low, on the low part of the scale? Well, today we'll talk about jumping on it with two feet. But here's the thing about the elusive joy. It's, it's a truth. It's a consistency in your life, in my life, that I want to illustrate today through the Word of God. That there, there's a constant line in your life. Anybody have a, a real um, emotional background or a, maybe a Pentecostal background where you go to church and it's very emotionally driven and you get up and there's that woman that gets up like on the fourth row about every on cue in the same service and she starts speaking in tongues and da 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 and she, she feels the Holy Spirit and she maybe falls over and the ushers come over and they, they, they lay a towel on her lap and they got to protect her so that she doesn't, you know, the, no, nobody? Okay, well, I'll tell you my experience. So um, I, uh, I did have a, a background for a short time in, in a very emotionally driven church. Now, what denomination? I think there's several different denominations that would fit this. And um, maybe within the crossing denominational lines where the, the atmosphere of the church is that each week when you come, we have to emotionally charge you. We have to get you pumped up and so that you feel something and you feel Jesus. And, and you know, I've been to one of these services and... Um, 
And I, I, tell, I tell the story often about my Aunt Lydia, who, who a lot of the experience that I had was going with her to her church, and she was involved in, in a church that was very emotionally driven. And her pastor would say things like, if the Holy Spirit shows up and I never even opened the word, it was a good Sunday because God's Holy Spirit showed up and something happened. And, you know, and, and my little sister came with church to me. I shared this with you guys a couple weeks ago. And the pastor wanted to cast the demon of fear out of her. And I'm like, uh, excuse me? She's not saved. You might want to see if she wants to ask Jesus in her heart before you start casting demons out of her. You know, I mean, that's a good place to start. And, and again, I got to be careful. I'm not trying to knock our brothers and sisters in Christ because those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is what I felt was that the idea of the church was um, to, to emotionally wind people up to connect with God. And, and some people connect to God very well that way. Now, I came from that and then I came to Calvary Chapel. And when I got to Calvary Chapel... It was like the opposite I felt at first, you know, like there's no Holy Spirit here. Like, you know, and I kind of felt like as a young pastor in Calvary Chapel, like it was my job to like Pentecostalize Calvary Chapel a little bit. Like, come on, let's meet in the middle somewhere. Let's have some Holy Spirit up in here. This is like, you know, and, and what happened with Calvary Chapel, you know, as we grew is when you have a few folks, you have a few rules. And when you have lots of folks, you got lots of rules. And, you know, our um, mantra for Calvary Chapel, really one of our distinctives is that everything should be done decently and in order. And so if you, you know, if you just do a study of the gifts of the spirit, what you find is that there are rules in the church of, of the way that the gifts of the spirit should be exercised in a gathering and other, another set of rules of the way that you should exercise gifts of the spirit in private. And so Calvary Chapel, um, you know, as we grew, we, we want the service to be as free from distraction as possible. Okay. And the reason for that is like, if, if God's Holy Spirit is, is ministering to somebody, somebody comes and maybe they just came wanting to receive something from God. And regardless of whether the sermon was good or bad or the worship, they, they just came ready, man. And it happens all the time. And, and, and God's Holy Spirit was speaking to them and they were getting something right. And, and in the service, if people are getting up and a baby's crying and stuff is going on and people are going to get coffee and, you know, the person sitting next to the person whose God's Spirit is working on is a little emotional and trying to deal with this during the service in a group of people it is being distracted. It can quench the, the move of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. And so um, our distinctive was that we want to keep all of our services free from distraction as possible so that um, so that people can can receive that that move of the holy spirit well you know kind of felt like coming into calvary chapel being kind of from a different background for a little bit was that um with all the rules we've we've quenched the holy spirit okay um so i'm gonna get to the point here because this does have all have a point but but in, in the churches that that i that i went to as a younger person what would happen was um you, you would be taught through these systems that you know emotionally you connect to god and what's interesting is, you know, that that same kind of emotionally driven um, ministry happens all around us, surprisingly, to find out that, that, that you know, not, it's not only in Pentecostal churches, it's in other places, too, where you go and, you know, there's, a, there's this thing that, that's supposed to drive you emotionally, which is great on Sunday. You leave Sunday charged, man. You come out of there. You felt God's spirit move on your heart. You got this emotional high when you were in there and everything's wonderful and you're connected to God and God's, God loves you and God, everything about God's word is true. And then on Tuesday, you hit Tuesday and your family pet, your family dog of 15 years who you love dearly, who's been sick, passes away on Tuesday morning. And now how do you feel? Now your emotions are in the dump. 
And, and because you, you have been taught to emotionally connect to God, then, then maybe God doesn't love you as much that day. Maybe your dog died because God was mad at you. You know, and, and you start to develop a, a relationship with God based on emotions, and your emotions are fickle. And when you're low, then, then oh, maybe God's truth. And, and it's hard, and then that consistency. And so what the, the consistent teaching and the consistent truth of God's, of God's word, what it does is it creates a straight line in our lives. And, and that's why we put such an emphasis more on, not as much on an emotional high to drive everybody to an emotional connection, but more of a truth. Now, listen, the Bible says on John, in John three sixteen, as you guys well know, says what? That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, but have everlasting life. Well, the first part of that says that God loves you for God so loved the world. Now, did God really, really love you on Sunday when you were having that emotional high? How about on Tuesday when your dog died? But if that consistency of God's word and what you put an emphasis on your life in is the truth of God's word, then, then it helps you to take out the highs and lows in your life. Now, that was, I know that was a lot to say that joy is the same way. Now, here's what we want to do. We want to draw a straight line today in the next, um, the clock says 22, but don't look at it because it's probably going to be like 32 by the time it's said and done. But the, um, we want to draw a straight line of joy in your life right out of the scriptures. Okay. We, we studied, as you guys know, chapter by chapter through the book of Philippians, the last eight weeks. And now we're going to go back and, and look at what the entire Bible says, as we did a little bit on specifically on the idea of joy and, and fulfilling our joy. But as we do, we're going to, we're going to start in Galatians chapter five, verse 22. And so, um, the fruit of the spirit is what happens when the Holy spirit indwells a believer. We use this, we, we have this expression, right? That I'm a born again, and then we qualify it. We say, I'm a born again, spirit-filled believer, right? Anybody use that term? Born again, spirit-filled believer. So the Holy Spirit fills your life and dwells your life. And we, we, we say that. Now, Jesus said that, and I, I got a good question last week. Someone asked me, hey, is there a difference in Ephesians, uh, or sorry, I keep saying Ephesians. In, in Galatians 5.22, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. You've been talking a lot about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in Corinthians 12 and 14 in Romans 12. Is there a difference between the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit? Now, there's a huge difference, okay? The, they're two separate categories, okay? The gifts of the Holy Spirit are the talents, the 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 really the talents, the gifts that God gives you to use for his witness, the power that God gives you to prophesy, to, to, for self-edification and speaking in tongues, to, to give, to serve, to have words of wisdom, words of knowledge, a gift to teach the Bible. That's a gift of, of God. The fruit of the Spirit, and, and the gifts vary. Every, every believer gets different gifts, and that's what God said. So don't trip that everybody doesn't have your gift and you don't have everybody's gift. And if their gift is different than yours, bless God. That's the way it's supposed to work. We all have different gifts. Use your gift to bless the body of Christ, okay? The fruit of the Spirit is for every believer. The fruit of the Spirit should, should in all of them be manifested in every believer that is filled with God's Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus said that, that you will know them by their, what? You'll know them by their fruit. So what does that mean? Like whether they're an orange or an apple or a pear or... What kind of fruit they eat, what kind of fruit they sell on the corner, oranges, 
No? So fruit, and, and then he explains to us kind of what this idea of fruit is. Jesus told us in John 15 that your purpose as a believer is to bear fruit. And if you don't bear fruit, then he's going to cut you off and throw you in the fire. And that should scare some of us. And it's supposed to, that, that we're supposed to bear fruit for God. But what is that fruit? That, that fruit is listed for you in Galatians chapter 5 in verse 22. Listen, it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love. Now pause there. And then he's going to give us um, about eight, seven, eight different adjectives of how the fruit of the spirit manifests in your life. By this, they will know you're my disciples or Jesus. So we're not, we're not to judge people. You know, that verse where Jesus says, you know, everybody in the world likes to quote it to you. You know, the number one tattoo in the world or in the United States today, the, the, the given to more people than anybody else, they have this tattoo on them. You may take a, what is it? Yeah, no, it's only God can judge me. You seen that one? Look it up. Google it. You'll see like um, everybody loves the tattoo. Like that should scare you that only God could judge you. You know, they, they try to use it like, oh, you can't, only God can judge me. Well, yeah, that should scare you because God is going to judge you. And, and the world loves to quote the idea, oh, don't judge me, or that Christians are judgmental, which is just, again, an attack from Satan, not true about the body of Christ, right? Not that we don't have folks that are legalistic or can be judgmental, but that, that's, but Jesus said that we're to be fruit inspectors, that, that you're to look at people's lives and you want to see fruit. Now, listen, the one thing you can't fake as a Christian is fruit. God's not going to allow it. There, there, there's, you know, the people can see it. They can see in your life if there's fruit. God, God will, that's something that's natural. People don't, you can wear all the Christian t-shirts you want. I got a t-shirt and it says, Jesus, 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 real big. Is that how people know I'm a Christian? Well, it says Jesus on my t-shirt three times. <laughs> I mean, I can wear a hat that says the same thing. I got bumper stickers. I got, you know, but that, that's not necessarily going to do it. And I can't fake it with that. Because Jesus said that people will be able to see your life. And what God's going to do is if it's natural, people are going to see fruit in your life. So what is that fruit? So number one, it's love. There should be a period after the word love there in Galatians 5.22. Because really, you can't add all of these other adjectives. Listen, look what they are. Joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, gentleness, self-control, all of those are manifestations but ultimately, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, period, manifested in these other things. Now, Jesus said the number one rule for us as Christians is not gentleness and self-control or all these other things. The number one thing is love, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. So in the fruit of the Spirit, ultimately, it's love. And if you love, because here's the point. If, I, if we took the word love off there and I said the fruit of the spirit and these are the things as a Christian I want you to focus on is having joy and peace and long suffering and being kind to people and being good to people and being faithfulness and gentleness. And, and if you had to focus on each of those individual things, you'll fail. But if I tell you focus on love, guess what's going to happen? All those other adjectives in your life, they're going to naturally come as a result of you trying to love people as you trying to love God. But the fruit of the spirit, the second word there is what? Joy. So one of the fruits of the spirit is joy. God wants you to have joy in your life. Okay, it manifests itself. I've, this is what we've talked about, you guys. And those of you that have been with us for the last eight weeks, you know this because I've, I've talked about it a ton. The number one um, ability, power, um, fruit in your life for witnessing is those of us who have been with me for eight weeks still haven't learned. Um, number one, it's joy, right? It's joy, 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 right? Because as a Christian, 
people are watching you. They want to see fruit in your life. And if you're miserable all the time, if you're grumpy all the time, if, you know, you, you live a life online of, of defeat and, and no victory and you, you, you put this thing out and why in the world would anybody want to serve the God you serve? Why would they go to the church you go to? If you're grumpy and miserable and your attitude is, well, I'm just going to give them people a piece of my mind, do me a favor. Don't tell them you come to church here. <laughs> tell them you go down the street to that other church, the grumpy one. But keep coming because we're going to try to give you some love and some joy before it's over. But, but it's joy. It's joy that people need to see in our lives. And it's something that, that again, is a choice. Now, you guys know um, Charles Swindoll, who's, who's one of my favorite and one of the most you know, one of the most famous preachers and authors of our time who's recently went home to be with the Lord. And um, Charles Swindoll, regarding um, the idea of joy, this is what he says. The longer I love, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past. It's more important than education, than money, than circumstance, than failure, than success, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, than giftedness or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way and we cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And, and so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. And then we've been saying in here that you, you cannot change your heart and God will not change your mind. But if you'll change your mind, then God will change your heart. And so attitude is a choice. It really, I'm sorry. Joy is a choice. Is there anybody in here right now that's saying, Chris, that's easier said than done. You know, you say that, but it's easier said than done. And, and, and I'm trying to be sensitive to you. And, and I understand that. That's probably can be true. Easier said than done. But, but the, the straight line, right, not the emotion. And the reason why it's easier said than done, because joy carries a lot of emotion with it in our lives. But, but we're going to try to take the emotion out of the truth for a little bit and just walk that straight line that, that joy is a choice. And it's something that God wants for you to get a hold of in your life. Okay, so let's look at some biblical examples of joy. All the way from Old to New Testament, as I promised that, you know, I started by telling you that we don't take something out of Job or something out of Ecclesiastes. We take a concept from the whole Bible and that way we make good doctrine out of it. So let's do that with joy. Let's, let's take the concept of joy and let's look at the whole Bible. Okay, so where are we going to start? Let's, we already started in Galatians. Let's go to um, Psalms and see what the psalmist says. And you could jump around with me, you guys, if you want, or you can just hang out. Um, and I'll kind of come back uh, to you. But we're going to start in Psalm 16, verse number 11. And I love this one because it says that the joy of the Lord is found in God's presence. Look at what verse 11 says. You will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy. Somebody say fullness of joy. You want to find you want to find the fullness of joy in your life? Spend time with Jesus because it's in God's presence that, that, that Jesus will fill your life with joy. You're missing joy in your life. You're probably missing your, your quiet time with the Lord. 
You're probably missing your personal um, devotional time of, of spending quality time with Jesus. And the Bible promises, listen, this is, this is the word, right? This is Bible, that the fullness of joy is in the presence of the Lord, the psalmist tells us. <clears throat> Nehemiah, in the one we started our study with, in chapter um, 8, in verse number 10, he, he says, For the joy of the Lord is your what? The joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. I'll call you out, man. You got to answer. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So listen, the strength for what? What does strength mean? Oh, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Pastor said joy of the Lord is your strength. And I repeated it. But we don't, you know, how do we apply it, right? Strength. Strength to do what? How about strength to get out of bed in the morning? What, 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 is, what, is, what does discouragement do in your life? In, in times that I felt the most discouraged and the most defeated, I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to do anything for the Lord. I didn't want to move on. I didn't want to um, be a witness. I didn't want to, you know, be around people. I wanted to be alone. I had no strength. And, and it's that strength that, that makes me a witness. It's that strength that, that I even get out of bed in the morning. That drive of every part of my life is the strength and where does that strength comes from? It comes from the joy of the Lord. It comes from the, the joy of the Lord comes from the presence of the Lord. And so being in his presence, experiencing joy in my life, and it'll be my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Let's look at a couple New Testament. What did um, Peter say about joy in our lives? In Peter chapter 1 and verse 8. And again, like I talked about, you guys, um, you know, the, it, it's so cool that in the idea of joy... We have, we have so many different authors of, of New Testament, Old Testament books who mention joy, who talk about joy. And it's just throughout the entire Bible, the idea of, of joy in the life of a believer. Well, Peter tells us in the idea of joy in chapter 1 and verse number 8, Peter says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will, you will be neither barren. That's the second Peter. I'm like, what? All right. First Peter. Whom having not seen you love, though, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, what? Inexpressible and full of glory. Somebody say glory. So whom having, whom having not seen. So in context, verse 8 is talking about Jesus. Whom having not seen you love. And, and it's one of the blessings for you and me as believers that we, we have a special faith. The, the angels say that, that the Bible says that the angels um, revel. They marvel at your faith because they're constantly in and out of the presence of God. And, and they understand where their faith comes because they see God. They see his majesty. They see his kingdom. And they travel in and out all the time. And then they see you and I who have never seen the kingdom of God. We've never seen Jesus in the flesh. Everything that we believe is sight unseen. And, and, and by the truth and by the faith that comes in the truth of the word of God. And it says that they marvel. And so we, we not having seen Jesus and yet still believe... Peter tells us, we rejoice with joy inexpressible. Who wants joy inexpressible? Anybody want some of that? Come on, somebody. Do you want joy inexpressible? Like, how, how would that manifest itself? Like, I don't know. Like, you, you see those, what are those Geico commercials? They're pretty good. You know, about some people like, you know, the guy likes to get stuck in the turnabout and he's in there and he's all excited. Woo -hoo -hoo, you know, and 
a lady, I don't know what the other ones are. She cat peas on her or something. She gets all excited, but hot coffee, spilling hot coffee on themselves. And, you know, you can only express so much joy. And, and, and Peter talks about having a joy that's inexpressible, that there's, there's just nothing in you that can express how awesome it feels. Somebody want some of that? I think so. Hey, let's see what uh, John says about joy. And then in John, in 1 John, and I love this, you guys. Um, so 1 John is talking about, and, and John mentions this. Um, this is the, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote the book of Revelation. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He records for us five books in the New Testament. The second closest person who wrote more in the New Testament than any other person, Paul being the first, John being the second. And um, John was a disciple of Jesus, an eyewitness of all of the things that he writes, John. And so um, John tells us, and he makes the same argument in Gospel of John in chapter one, basically that, you know, as Peter just said, we don't see Jesus and we believe. And some people would say, well, Jesus is, was just a concept or an idea. And, and, and John says, but humbug, I touched the dude. I saw him. I beheld him. I put my arms around Jesus. I put my head on his belly at the Last Supper. And John says, Bahumbug, I was there. I touched him. I beheld him. I, I seen him. And so John kind of in that vein here in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3 says, That which we have seen and heard, talking about Jesus, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, among this room, you guys, we have lots of different walks of life. We have lots of different folks with different backgrounds and different opinions and um, different political views. And, but yet, the one common denominator, and why do we fellowship, and what really brings us together, is love of the Father and the love of Jesus Christ. And the fellowship that we have is truly with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It's what brings us together. It's who we are as Christ followers, as Christians. And then he says in verse four, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. You know, what's cool about that statement from, from, from grandpa John here is that he wasn't always grandpa John, but I call him grandpa John because by the time he wrote revelation, he was grandpa John, but grandpa John here and, and first John, he was grandpa John by here too. It was late in his life. That's a statement he got from Jesus. That's something that he heard Jesus say, that your joy may be full. I was so impacted going through the gospel of John um, this last time we taught it here on a Sunday morning. It was in 2013, so it's been a little bit. It's been a couple years now. But um, in the last 48, 72 hours of Jesus' life, check this for yourself. Go starting in the, in, in the gospel of John in 13, like chapter 13 to 21 of the gospel of John, records about a 48, 72 hour period of Jesus' life. And in those last hours, knowing what he was going to face, like five or six times, Jesus mentions your joy and was really concerned with your joy and my joy. He, he, to the disciples at the time of his death in his crunch time message at the very end of his life, he, he said to them multiple, multiple times that my joy may be in you and your joy may be in me and that your joy may be full and that you would have joy. And he was so concerned with the concept of joy of all the things that, that at the end of Jesus's last moments with the disciples that he really wanted to make sure they got. One of the central themes was that they had joy. Amen. All right. 
That's one more. Let's look at Paul. And we get Paul multiple places, right? That Paul wrote Philippians. But let's look at one other example of Paul in a different place on the idea. Let's look at Romans chapter 15. And this is one of the big ones. This is one of the big joy verses or hope verses. Ben Corson, who uh, was here a couple weeks ago, uh, or not weeks ago, months ago now, um, this was the verse that he travels the, the United States. He travels the world sharing on this verse, chapter 15, verse 13. It's his life verse. It's the message that God gave him. Coincidentally, Ben is in Utah again today. He's teaching at a Calvary Chapel in Lehigh today. So excited for uh, Ben. I got to talk to him and he was coming in uh, late last night and he's leaving right after church today. So just a quick trip for him. But he's in Utah right now preaching this verse. And it says in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. And so Paul's encouragement to you and I was that the God of hope would fill you with all bitterness. That he would just make you those Christians who have to have the perfect doctrine so that your faces look like you're sucking on lemons all the time. That your main thing that God wants to fill you with is truth and intellectualism so that when you have an argument, you can be right. Is that what God wanted for you? You know, sometimes you can be right and dead wrong, right? Sometimes you can win an argument and lose a soul. Because, because interestingly enough, the number one call of the Bible is not to have good doctrine or perfect doctrine. And we make, we make a pretty, you know, maybe, maybe too much. We make a pride ourselves here at Calvary Chapel that we have good doctrine and we want to have good doctrine and that we try to walk the word out in a straight line. But, but that's not really, that's important, but that's not the most important thing. Jesus said the most important thing was love that manifests in joy. And before that, that the God of hope would fill you with all joy. And it's God's desire for you to have joy. Now, hopefully we've made enough of a case because it's time to get to Philippians. Now I got two minutes left and we're, we're finally at Philippians. But um, enough of a case that, that God's desire for you is to have joy. And, and again, that joy is a choice. And so regardless how you feel that there's a straight line of truth from the word of God, that, that God's intention for you is to experience joy. Okay. So I'm going to do, as we talked about, as really kind of was the intention today was to, to, to do the conclusion to the book of the Philippians, the next series, just so you guys know, if you turn the page from Philippians, or you probably don't have to turn your page. It says Colossians there. That's where we're going to go next. We're going to, in the next couple of weeks, do our Christmas series and go through the Christmas message. And then, um, probably about the start of the new year, the next, um, the next study is in Colossians. And then I think we go to Matthew after that. I think we're going to do the gospel of Matthew after Colossians, but um, that's where we're headed. So, so listen, Philippians chapter one, I'm going to try to speed this up a little bit and just, I got lots of notes left, but um, I was telling Lydia, you know, the first week that we, we did Philippians, I took a week in the beginning, you know, I'm taking a week here in the end to do a conclusion. I took a week in the beginning to do a um, introduction to Philippians and I made it all about joy and that the book of Philippians, the theme is joy and all of the, the different commentaries that wrote on the book of Philippians that you read, that you get out there, they all have something to do with joy in the title. And then as we got into the chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I remember telling Lydia about, I don't know, some way through it, like, wasn't I supposed to be telling them about joy? 
Weren't we supposed to be teaching about joy? It seems like I've been weeks now going through chapter by chapter and just hasn't been a ton of joy. And, um, and, and like, I need to get back to it somehow. But, but really, we just, we just walked a straight line right through Philippians. And the reality is, the Apostle Paul writes the book of Philippians from, from where? From prison. And one of the themes of, of the Apostle Paul is that there's joy regardless of circumstance. And that Paul really lays out for us in Philippians that one of the themes is that there's joy through suffering. And so we talked a lot about suffering. We talked a lot about the ups and the downs. And, he, and here's the takeaway. Okay, here's the therefore in your life. If you make a choice today that if you face Tuesday when your dog dies, as we talked about, that you're going to find a joy in the Lord. And God doesn't call you to have joy over the circumstance of your dog. Okay, Where, where's your dog going to go when he dies? Does your dog go to heaven? Here's the answer. If you think your dog goes to heaven, then amen, your dog is in heaven. And if you don't think your dog went to heaven, then he went to doggy heaven somewhere else. I don't know. Whatever, whatever floats your boat, is not, it doesn't really matter. Whatever makes you feel better about the day. Um, really none, none, nonetheless, I think God cares one way or the other. And, um, but the, the joy that is consistent, regardless of what kind of day you're having and that, um, you make a choice today. Okay. Everybody make a choice. Okay. That, that whatever you face tomorrow, that no matter what, no matter when, no matter where, no matter why, that you will trust in the Lord. And that you will have joy in the Lord. And that's one of the themes of the, of, of, of the book of Philippians as we go through it is that, you know, as you face tomorrow, it's going to help you tomorrow to decide today that joy is a choice and you're going to have the joy of the Lord. Let's look at a couple of the key verses as we, we kind of wind down, as we start to um, point the plane down and start heading down. We're not quite landing yet. Landing gear's not out yet, but we're pointing down. It says, so let's look at chapter one. We're just going to, I'm just going to highlight and bounce around a little bit. As we go through a couple of the key verses to the book of Philippians, chapter one, verse 21 says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And one of the keys of joy in your life is living a Christ centered life. You want to be miserable in your life. Here's the way that Paul tells us to do that. And that's to not live a Christ centered life. Here's what you do. You have you have some friends that are Christian and 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 that, that are your that you go to church with that that have like like-minded like you. And then you have another group of friends that are heathen and they like to do things of the world and, and you hang out with them sometimes. And when you hang out with them, you do what they're doing. And then when you hang out with your Christian friends, then you do what they're doing and, and, and don't do those other things. That's how you're miserable. You put one foot in church and then you put one foot in the world and you have the fence right in the middle and you stand right on top of the fence and, and, and your one foot in the church is miserable because your foot in the world and your foot in the world is miserable because your foot in the church and, and, and you'll, you'll always be miserable if you're lukewarm. You'll never be in a place where you're really going to experience the joy of the Lord in that place of your life because your lifestyle won't allow it. And that's what Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is, is gain. And so there's this concept that Paul starts with in one of the key verses that, that you're all in, that you're, you're playing poker and, and you shove them all, all the time. You're all in in Jesus. You're all in. And then let's look at chapter three and verse seven, another concept along the same lines. And Paul says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted rubbish or loss for Christ, um, 
lost for Christ, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as dung or rubbish that I may gain Christ. And so the second kind of key verse there is just, again, it's that all in idea. It's the idea that all the things in life that I've accomplished that I think are important, I'll count them all rubbish for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. And in that, there's the joy of the Lord. And then Paul tells us very plainly as we went over, and we're going to do again today. So get ready in chapter four in verse four, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You ready? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. One more time. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know, I often remind us that um, what's important and one of the key concepts of Philippians is this idea of in the Lord. Rejoice where? In the Lord, right? So that so if if we're rejoicing in the Lord, then we're not rejoicing in our circumstances. We're not rejoicing in our highs and our lows. We're not rejoicing in the fact that we jumped really high in church on Sunday and or that we ran really low on Tuesday when something bad happened. But our rejoicing is in the Lord. You know, I like it that Paul says in Philippians, he uses that term in the Lord a lot of times. That's good. That's good grammar, huh? That's good preaching right there. A lot of times. He uses that in the Lord a lot of times. But what he also does is he says in Christ Jesus. And I love that same thing in the Lord, in Christ. And just that reminder that we're in Christ, that it's in Jesus. It's in the presence of God. And, and, and the rejoicing comes from the Lord. And then Paul tells us after. And, and the, again, verse four of, of chapter four, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It, it's it's a commandment. It's it's. Um, in the Greek, it's, it's a commandment. It's a commandment. It's an imperative of a commandment that he's just telling you, do it. You don't have to feel like it. You don't have to want to do it. You just have to do it. Just get up. Remember what, Josh, remember what God told Joshua in Joshua chapter 7? Joshua just got beat up by AI. 36 of his men died. Falls on his face and he starts whining. Oh, Lord, we should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. God says, get up. Twice. Go read it. I ain't kidding. Just like that, too. God said, get up. I know. And I, I could hear the intonation when I read the Bible. I don't know if you guys can, but the Lord, t- I can. And the Lord said to him, get up. And sometimes I think the Lord maybe says, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's a little bit of that kind of, I think, just commandment, just practical. Like I've told you, I've given it to you as a command. Do it. Step up. And then um, another key Right after that, in verse 6 and 7 from the book, it says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Listen, and then God's going to give you uh, one of the biggest blessings, one of the biggest supernatural miracles that he promises in the New Testament. And that is a peace that surpasses all understanding. A, one, a certain peace that people will look at your life and go, I can't believe what you're going through. And that you feel good about it or that you can have joy or that you're happy. Where did it come from? And you say, well, I have no idea. It surpasses understanding. I don't even know myself. You're right. I think I should feel terrible, but I don't. I have a joy that surpasses understanding. And then what do people say to you? I want some of that. How can I get that? Because I don't feel that way. 
But again, the idea of here of anxiety and of, of, of worry that, that God says, be anxious for nothing. And what is his solution in the Philippians to find that joy and that peace that surpasses understanding? He says, basically through prayer, let your requests be made known to God with, with thanksgiving and, and, and let your supplication be made known to God. And then the peace of God will guard your heart and mind. In Christ Jesus. And so rather than be anxious, rather than be worried, we take it to the Father in prayer and we just lay it out. Because supplication means a request. It means basically tell him what's going on. And so we get that promise of joy. And then again, we have this one that we love to quote, 413, one of the last key verses of um, Philippians. And he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then again, you can have the joy of the Lord, but it comes in Christ, comes from the Lord, comes from God who strengthens you. And, and then I'm trying to decide which ones of these to skip so we can finish. But um, Christ, the, uh, the Christian life, rejoicing in spite of suffering. We talked about that. Christ, the Christian pattern, rejoicing in lowly service. And, and I'm not going to go to it. I'm just going to tell you it's in chapter 2 and verse 12 through 17. Just in serving God humbly. One of the areas that we find joy is um, in serving other people. And, and, and if you constantly have your eyes on yourself and, and you're constantly thinking about yourself, worried about your own problems, focused on your own problems, and you expect the people in your life to also be focused on you and your problems and help you, you're going to be miserable forever. And, and this is a big boy pants one. This is, this is a suck it up, put on your big boy pants, and, and start doing something for somebody else. Forget your self-pity and what's going on in your life. And even if it is terrible, and I would agree that it's hard what you're going through, but if you will focus on helping somebody else that's going through something and serving somebody else, you will find the joy of the Lord. And you will be miserable and you will not find the joy of the Lord as long as you're focusing on yourself is one of the keys to the book of Philippians. And then the next one is that Christ is the objection of our joy. And we've talked about that in Jesus, in him. And then Christ is um, the Christian strength in rejoicing. And we talked about that through anxiety. And so re- really, I, I believe the book of Philippians, and we will, we will you know, finish, wrap up here with this, you guys, that, that it reaches its pinnacle in chapter 2 and verse 15. And as we spent this last eight weeks, um, I think the most powerful part of, of what we went through together um, in Philippians is a Christian doctrine that we find in chapter 2. Um, about Jesus emptying himself. Do you guys remember what the Greek word that we taught you was? What is the emptying? How does Jesus empty himself? What is that word? Kenosis, right? Is that word we spent a whole week? I mean, we really, really, what does it mean? The word kenosis means that Jesus emptied himself. He humbled himself, the Bible says. Um, And the question that we asked in that session was, what did he kenosis? What did he empty himself of? And as you go through the five things the Bible lays out very clearly, very plainly that he emptied himself of. And you realize the position that Christ had before he, he humbled himself and took on flesh to die on a cross for you, to die on a cross for me. It's so, it so humbles you that you can't but react to the sacrifice and the love and of what God did when he sent his son, of what Jesus did when he left heaven in, in Philippians chapter 2 and the idea of this kenosis. And it says 
in verse um, number eight, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself or he emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Listen, therefore, God has also highly exalted him. Now, in verse number nine, right there, it says highly exalted, capital H-I-M, him, Jesus, highly exalted him. I hope you have that underlined. I hope you have that highlighted in your Bible that God has highly exalted Jesus. You know what the critics say of us, you guys? You know what the critics say of our brand of church, our brand of Christianity? I I don't get it. Like, I don't get it, but for them, they don't get us, I guess, is that we put too much of an emphasis upon Jesus. That everything, all you, you know, you Jesus freaks and Jesus this and Jesus that. And, you know, and I make no bones. I'm not embarrassed. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know how to lift the name of Jesus any higher or make it any more in my preaching in my life about Jesus, that it is about Jesus, that Jesus is not the only thing the everything. He is the only thing, the everything that it, when we say it's all about Jesus, that when we wear T-shirts that say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And when we make everything about Jesus, there's a reason and it's right. Listen to what it says here, that Jesus emptied himself. And for that reason, what does it say in verse number nine? That God has done what? That God has highly exalted Jesus, specifically Jesus. Well, you put such a greater emphasis on Jesus than you do on the the Father or on the Holy Spirit. Well, maybe not intentionally, but biblically, God has highly exalted Jesus. And he's not done. He's not done. I've highly exalted him, and and after I highly exalted him, I did a few other things for him. God says about his son, Jesus. So I've highly exalted the name of Jesus, and for kickers, I gave him a name which is above every name. The name of Jesus is a name above every name, God says. You mean more than Pat? Yeah. Name above every name. More than Trent? Yeah. Yeah, more than the rest of you. Yeah, a name above every name. Listen, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Amen. Let's stand. Let's have the worship team come up and close us in a song. Amen. Amen. So, hey, we would like to uh, pray for you. And uh, as as we sing our last song, we um, we want to encourage you that at the name of Jesus, God's given him a name above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess to the glory of God. That's a verse of salvation. And that talks about that if you, if you believe in the Lord Jesus and you confess with your mouth and you bend your knee today, that there's salvation. And when it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, that means that someday in eternity, some folks will breathe their last. And for the first time in their life, they will bend their knee and they will confess with their tongue that Jesus is Lord when they see him. And when they see the reality of what's true, but at that point, it won't be unto salvation. It'll be unto condemnation. As, as for the first time they confess. And there's two class of people. There's a class of people that Philippians 2.9 today. And there's a class of people that won't Philippians 2.9 until after they die. And for those that wait until after they die, it'll be too late. But for those of you today, you have a choice 
to bend your knee today and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord unto the glory of God and unto the own salvation and to, be, and to have joy in the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And so we want to give everybody an opportunity to make sure that they know that they know that they know that they're saved. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, please. Bow your heads just for the privacy of each person in here. And if you're in here today and you want to ask Jesus in your heart as your Lord and Savior, I just want you to raise your hand up. You can raise it up and put it back down. If you want to get right, if you're not sure if you're a Christian and you want to get saved or ask Jesus in your heart for the first time, you want to confess, maybe you are a believer and and you just want to today get right with the Lord and repent. And maybe you walk with the Lord and you've been walking at a distance and today you want to reconnect or recommit your life to the Lord. I want to give you that opportunity today. I want to pray for you. you just raise your hand up and put it back down. Amen, amen, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Be my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died on a cross and rose again the third day. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, and I believe in my heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Forgive me of my sins. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.